Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I only patronize union brothels. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I like to think I have a keen eye for the possible. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of soft power and anime theory. Today, we'll be talking about The Expanse's third episode of Season 6, Force Projection. In the next few weeks, we will be talking about The Expanse, basically just The Expanse until The Expanse is over, which will happen too soon. Yeah, about uh, we're <laughs> We're going to be doing a bit of a seasonal reboot ourselves in the new year, and I'm going to try to create some more organized ways for our patrons to suggest and vote on show topics and some other goodies available to patrons. For now, you can tweet at us directly. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. And we do have that Patreon page. Dan, tell me more about our Patreon page. So first of all, the URL is patreon.com slash space the nation. If you go to that Patreon page, well, there's not a lot you can do unless you decide to become a patron, which you know what? That's not the worst idea, Anna. If you become a patron, you get access to all sorts of things, including swag, early access to podcasts, access to our Discord channel, which is a really funky conversation across a wide variety of topic areas. Funky is maybe not the word. Not funky? Okay. Yeah. I would say it's a really it's a really engaging community. Idiosyncratic? Right. Okay, okay. Idiosyncratic, whatever. There we yeah. go. Okay. Funky is not funky. Yeah, you're right. Okay, yeah. go ahead. You get uh, access to our Discord channel, which leads to a whole bunch of interesting, engaging, and idiosyncratic conversations. You will get access to our monthly AMAs, which we normally do on the first Saturday uh, of every month. And then finally, we are getting closer and closer to 250 patrons. And once we get to 250 patrons, we will do a special patrons-only episode with a topic chosen by, hey, guess what? The patrons. Also, I, I want to point out, if you're already a patron, perhaps you can give a patron membership as a gift. It will <laughs> arrive by Christmas. It's That's better cool. than a gift certificate, I swear. Do you know someone who loves science fiction and is geeky about politics? <laughs> I bet you do. If you're listening to this show, you know someone like you. So <laughs> get them a membership. That is a great suggestion, Anna. I might have to do that myself. Another great way to support the show that costs you nothing is rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or tell your friends and neighbors. Dan, why are we talking about this today? Because it's The Expanse, Anna, and we are going to see this show out to the end, to wherever it goes. Wherever it goes, through the rings, back to Earth. Yes. Who knows? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stay on the Rossi till, till the end. We're riding the Rossi. There we go. <laughs> So we're not so going to start. I know it does. <laughs> it really just sounds dirty. There's no other way to put it. Uh, you know, but I, I kind of like it. There I we think go. Amos yeah. would too. Oh, Amos would definitely like it. <laughs> I think Bobby might too, to tell you the truth. <laughs> All right, but we're not starting at the Rossi today. Where are we starting? Today? We're going to start with Laconia. So we are all Laconians now in this uh, opening sequence. So Kara is not paying attention in school again. The teacher is explaining that they're all Laconians now, although I'm going to be blunt. I don't see any flags or anthems anywhere, so they better get on those uh, symbols pretty darn quick. Kara is concerned about her baby dragons, and so right after the school bell, she dishes her little brother, Sean, and dashes off to her favorite rock face. Once there, she finds that the drone that she had used in the previous episode that seemed busted is now fixed. Also, the baby dragons seem all perfectly okay. Kara surmises that the weird space dogs can fix things. She dashes back to her habitat, super excited uh, to tell her family about this development. But whoa, emotional tone shift. Her younger brother appears to be dead from playing soccer, if I could near figure that out. 
Anna, we now know from what the producers and writers have said about uh, season six that every episode in this final season will open with these little Laconia vignettes. How long do you think we'll have to wait until it gets connected with the rest of the plot? Also, is Kara going to try to have that creature fix her dead sibling? I'm not going to lie. I'm a little worried we're heading into monkey's paw territory here, Anna. Well, Dan. Yes. This plot is based on the Expanse novella, Strange Dogs. How many novellas are there, Anna? Because, like, you keep mentioning this, and, like, I know there are main books, and, like, there seem to be a lot of Expanse. There's there's a lot of Expanse literature out there, including several novellas. I have not read them all. I can tell you that Kara and Zan play huge roles as the Laconia plotline moves forward in the books. Hmm. I am very curious what they're going to rig up here. I I can assure you that we are not going directly into monkey's paw territory. Okay. Like monkey's paw adjacent, perhaps. Ooh. All right. Okay, then. But it doesn't, it's, I think you'll find it worthwhile if we're going where I think we're going. Mm -hmm. They do make some detours from the book, so. Mm Mm-hmm. Who knows? I'm again going to complain about the absence of Muskrat, the chocolate lab. And I'll probably do that in every episode. Although he would be, or she. This is, I assume, a character from the books, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Muskrat, the chocolate lab, would be a puppy at this point. But all the more reason to include scenes of Muskrat, the chocolate lab. Hmm. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. On the opposite end of the Uncanny Valley scale, Mm -hmm. I want to point out the alien tech we see in literally the very first shot of the the episode it starts with what i guess is the alien tech and then goes down to laconia yes yeah one of the you know one of the reasons i think a lot of us were excited to see the expanse put on a screen is that the descriptions of the protomolecule technology in the books are really enticing but kind of hard i'm gonna say to you could go a lot of different directions with it let's say like Mm -hmm. It's not that they're vague at all. It's just you would imagine something completely different than I would, hmm. you know? Yeah. But one of the things that they really lean on is the idea that it it seems like a very unnatural combination of organic and technology. Hmm. And I think that a little bit we saw does kind of capture that. It did, yes. I, I will say this, like... I. Much as you point out, it's difficult sometimes to take something that might have a reasonably interesting and particularly metaphorical description on the page and try to put it on the screen in a literal way. Because as you say, your vision of it in your head and my vision of it in my head are not necessarily going to be commensurate. And so that's always a challenge to do. But I will say that what the few glimpses that I've seen of that structure do look, in fact, like a common, like alien tech in that mm-hmm. there's some sort of biological element to it. But no, this is also technology. And, and I'm, I want to know more about it, I guess. It's sort of like the beginning of a movie with involving like, you know, a horror movie where like there's a beast out there and you're only seeing it like in very brief glimpses and can't tell what's actually going on. All right, Dan, let's move on from Laconia. Okay, let us migrate to series where we find a humanitarian trap. The joint force of UN and MCRN troops takes series. It's not that hard because Marco Anaris and the Free Navy are nowhere to be found, and they strip series of anything useful. MCRN Admiral Carino, who I believe we last saw in season three, warns that this is a trap. And hey, foreshadowing there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious about the number of times in genre where someone warns something is a trap and then it turns out not to be a trap. Exactly. Like it's just completely straightforward. Right. (laughs) Anyway. 
The fleet finds only uh, Nico Sandrani, the nominal governor of Ceres, and the million belters that Marco left with only three weeks of food and water left. This will tax the UN's already overstretched supply lines. Abbasarala orders that Sandrani be questioned and that the Belters receive humanitarian relief, which prompts a little grumbling from her generals, but not all that much. The relief mission proceeds with some grunts completely getting and understanding why they are doing this, and other grunts acting like total assholes. Ace Embed reporter Monica captures all of this with her eye camera. As humanitarian supplies are being doled out, Monica talks to a homeless Belter, and then BOOM! Bombs go off all across Ceres, devastating the station and leaving the situation there very much in flux. Gosh, I guess Admiral Carino was right on that. So, Anna, I have many questions, but first, I'm just going to make a comment here. We should note, perhaps... <laughs> a comment rather than a question, A comment really. rather than a question. Uh, we should note that Sandrani is played as a non-binary character by non-binary actor, Joe Vanicola. Any thoughts on this? I mean, I love it, and... I love that they handled this uh, bit of representation, like they handle almost all kinds of representation of somewhat marginalized groups mm-hmm. on this show, like when they're portrayed, um, whether it's like racial or the way that they portrayed polyamory or the way that they talk about sex work. It's just very like, this is how we do it here. You yep. know, like this is just what happens. Sanraji is actually referred to by them, they pronouns at one point, which yep. I did not catch the first time I because- it goes by really fast. Right. And you know what? Like, it's not a big deal, right? right? Like, once you get used to that, it is something you might not catch because yeah. it's just how people talk. So, yes, props to The Expanse. Love it how casual it is. And uh, I do think that character is really interesting. Yeah. And and, and ho- well hope- done. Hopefully survives well done. The, the bombs going off. Uh, we can only yeah. hope. All right. So on to the more serious questions. Let's just be blunt by this. Are you telling me no one checks series for bombs? I mean, I, I find this implausible. You know, the Admiral was right. This was clearly a trap. And if they're going to strip everything else and leave those people to potentially die, you don't think they're going to potentially explode uh, the station? And also, related to that, who planted the bombs? I'm assuming it's Marco, but, like, I could be persuaded otherwise. Okay. Uh, who else might it be? I'm curious about that. Like... Who else would would have planted them? The only... So I have two other thoughts on who it could be. The first would be, let's say, if Mars doesn't really want to get involved with this, you know, could it have been to disrupt the coalition? And the other possibility I had was maybe it was literally like a, a, you know, extremist belter group that stayed behind and that just you know became right. true nihilists after Marco left. I mean, I'm I'm 95% sure it's Marco, but... It, it does seem like, I and I get why he might have done it, but it also seems like a really stupid move, even on Marco's part. I agree, because one of the thoughts I had is that um, it's Marco's bloodlust, you know, outweighing his strategery, because he kind of solves the humanitarian problem for them if you blow up the station, right? I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a cruel way to look at oh, it. Oh, man. That's, that's cold. <laughs> but it is yeah. true, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, it, it could just be him, again, like opting for cruelty when it might be better to play strategy. Mm-hmm. I also like the idea that it could be the Martians, because we've been complaining about about how we don't hear about what's happening on Mars. Right. And apparently what's happening on Mars, to judge by the Martian soldiers or the Martian military brass that we see, uh, is that they're just being assholes. Like, <laughs> like they're, they're kind of reluctant members of the coalition. And also well, I don't know. really... I, I'm going to push back. Like, the admiral who was involved was actually rather okay, prescient about Okay, not assholes. I, I, I think that's I'm wrong. Not assholes. I, yeah. I, okay, I won't say assholes. I, yeah. I, 
what my thought was not so much asshole, but like kind of doubling down on we're the military experts here. Yeah. We're the ones who know how to do this. Like well, you should leave the military shit to us, which, okay, they may have a point. So I read that slightly differently because like the idea, like I actually thought the Martians, like, so you're talking about the exchange between Avasarala and the Admiral talking mm-hmm. about interrogating Oh, and also the, the, yeah, the interrogating. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but the point that it was, was that the, the Admiral said, Hey, you know what? We're good at our job. We don't need to torture people, Avasarala. So that was the way I read that response. I just wonder how honest that was. That's a fair point. That's a legit, <laughs> legit argument. That's fair. Okay. It also seems uncharacteristic of Avasarala to just take the Belter's word for yeah. this. Although, um, I'm, we'll, we'll talk about it more later. I also wanted to mention, I liked that little scene with the two grunts and their yeah. differing approaches to the Belters, um, mm-hmm. with the one of them going through the trouble of saying in belter you know welcome and this is, we're here to help welcome this is for you we're yeah. help and then the other one you know being Same. as he is called an asshole yes are we supposed to <laughs> weren't we supposed to shoot these people and by the way to be fair it i'm also sympathetic even to the asshole because it's a tough thing to be told on the one hand you're going to be fighting an enemy and then to immediately do a 180 and say and now you're going to give them you know humanitarian supplies i mean i i understand it on an intellectual level but for someone who's got to like steal themselves for the idea that they're going to fight, it's not always the easiest pivot cognitively. I'm just saying that. All right. Yeah. The other thing I have to ask, of course, we have to talk again about, you know, Monica's reporting skills. How do you rate them? I mean, it it was really interesting to see her, you know, sort of trying to get extra stories in in this particular sequence. I was amused by the idea that embedding is still a thing. Yes, I thought you would like that. Sure. (laughs) I was also amused, and this is super subtle, and I'm not sure if it was intentional, but there's this scene where she just just kind of looks aimless. Like, she's just kind of like walking, like just kind of like looking around and walking. That is what most of reporting is. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like walking around looking for shit, like something, (laughs) hoping something interesting is going to happen, you know, while you're around, especially if you're doing that kind of on the scene reporting, whether it's on the campaign trail or in, in, in a military zone, right? Like you're not guaranteed something cool or reportable is going to happen. So a lot of time, much like being in the military, like Mm -hmm. you're just sitting around. We should note that Anna Hopkins listens to the podcast. Thank you, Anna. Hi. Hello. (laughs) And she tweeted at us about our observations, um, wondering what kind of income she had and how she supports herself and who pays for the reporting. Which we discussed in the last episode, yes. Yes. We uh, said that uh, Monica might have a substack, and she says, yes, Monica has a substack. (laughs) I have questions about that, Dan. Like... Many questions about mm. that. I think people at Substack would have questions about that. Hey, I think people at I think people at Substack are probably thrilled that Monica would say that she is a. Substack. Oh, I, I'm sure, but yeah. like, I just wonder what if their business model might be different. Let's put it that way. Possible. Okay. <laughs> if their business model, as it stands, sustains them like another like 300 years. <laughs> all right, you know, very cool. Mm-hmm. I did notice, and and maybe you have better vision or, or were able to see it more clearly than I am. There is a little what we call a bug in the bottom left-hand corner of the report that I assume was Monica's about Anna. See, uh, this happens in real life too, the Annas and the Annas oh, and, right. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. anyway, 
There was a, a little bug identifying the network or the news source. Mm-hmm. Did you happen to see what it was? No, I did not. Did you? I tried. And here's uh, behind the scenes, listener. We are watching the screeners mm-hmm. for The Expanse. And the video quality is not as great. <laughs> as I'm sure it is on Amazon Prime, which is where as it you is on Amazon Prime. So there is probably an answer to this question. And it is, um, you may have it, dear listeners, in which case, of course, tweet at us, say something yeah, uh, please do. in the Discord, uh, whatever. But that may provide an answer to at least the name of Monica's news organization. And you know what? I have one big problem. Okay. Which is, of course, that she tells the asshole grunt, don't worry, we'll edit that out. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you mm-hmm. do not. Mm-hmm. That is news. Well, what I thought was it wasn't just news. It was also leverage in that. I mean, so that me, is more Monica. That is Monica's style. Okay. It's true. Because, like, I mean, so, I, again, you're the reporter. Although, I, I mean, to do that, that, speci- that kind of, like, I have to say, so ethically, that would bother me. Listeners, I wish I could describe Anna's facial expressions right now, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, so that, all right, maybe this is the IR person. I mean, but I would assume yeah. that like if a reporter saw that and knew that like simultaneously it's a story, but also it's not the most important story. And maybe you would choose not to report that in return for getting other access or other information. Is that like an ethical? Pr- I, I honestly don't know about this like that. Uh, you know, it's an interesting question. It is an interesting question and different people will have different judgments on it. Okay. It does kind of go to the very flexible definition of newsworthy. Yeah. I can see a conversation with Avasarala mm-hmm. where she would tell Monica, and in, this is a kind of conversation that I have never had, but I have read about in books. <laughs> but it is true. Le- Leatherbound books, Anna? Leatherbound books. Um, yeah. But you, you, you'll know what I'm talking about, which is that a, a person, a powerful political official, asks a journalist to not compromise mm-hmm. the reputation or the security of the state. Right. And there is an argument that if she reported on that, mm-hmm. it would make the UN look bad. Oh, God, yeah. At a time when we really need trust everyone in institutions. To kind of ha- yes. Right. Yeah. So, so it just would be a, a does it rise to a newsworthiness bar? And I got to say, I'll just do the quick behind the scenes, more behind the scenes for me, which Mm -hmm. is in my career, I have had somewhat similar incidents Mm -hmm. happen where I know a piece of gossip that is true. It's not just gossip. Mm -hmm. It's true. And And you would have felt comfortable putting it in a story. Not that you did, but like you, you... you had the, the receipts, as it were. Right. But yeah. what would the point be? Right. And I want to tell listeners, it was super minor shit. Like, yeah. I think I made the right call on this stuff. Like, yeah. involving minor campaign people, involving, like, stuff that's, like, not illegal, not right. really even immoral, just would be kind of, like, fun. Color, say. as it were. Yeah. Yeah. But also kind of look bad. Yeah. Right. And I think that's not necessarily morally compromising mm-hmm. i just guess the, there's a part of me that i did that's i guess i, I miss being a reporter Aww. like because i was like oh no you should run with that but <laughs> you know she probably yeah she's probably being smart about it because yeah. it's not that big a story right and it's useful yeah so one more thing about series dan yes yes uh-huh. kitty <laughs> there's a kitty 
Again, I hope kitty. all I will say is I hope the kitty makes it. Like I, you know, the series arc ends with the explosion. We have no idea yeah. what's happening. I presume Monica made it, so also the kitty would have made it <laughs> because she was with the kitty at the time. Right. I have many questions about pets in space mm-hmm. in general. Some of which are answered, by the way, in books eight and nine. But and I, I, we shan't get into them now. You're right. Let us uh, move over to the Tynan in which we are seeing Drummer assembling her armada, as it were. So the Tynan and the Inazami rendezvous with the Galt and the Saberhagen, former Golden Bow uh, clan members who now pledge their fealty to Drummer. Michio and Joseph watch Monica's documentary, which we were just talking about, which features a cameo from Pastor Anna explaining how hard life is. I believe she is. Is she an Anna or an Anna, actually? I'm not sure. See? It's real life. I know. You could call her Anna. Go ahead. I, yeah, well, I like it. I, my default is to say Anna at this point for obvious reasons. I approve. Anna. Yes, I figured you'd approve that. Continue. Uh, okay. So it features from a cameo from uh, Pastor Anna, played by, I believe, Elizabeth Mitchell, who we last saw in season four, explaining how hard life is on Earth right now, given all the asteroids hitting it. Michio feels <laughs> sympathy. Joseph, not so much. Drummer plans to raid the supply depot, but is legit confused about why the supply depots are there in the first place. Anna, it was nice to see Pastor Anna again, uh, one of two important cameos in this episode. Was it my imagination, or did her description of how Earth was coping or not coping with the asteroids perfectly match how the U.S. has handled the pandemic? What, Dan, you don't hear people banging pots and pans at the end of <laughs> essential worker shifts anymore? You know? No. Like, huh? Nope. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. It's sad. Mm -hmm. We shan't get into too much uh, current events, but I'm sure you've also been reading about how this rather lackluster ability to follow through Mm -hmm. on the things we need to do during a pandemic is becoming more of a threat now that we have this incredibly, you know, transmissible. um, Omicron. Omicron. I always want to say Omicron, which is what Biden called it. Really? And it oh. does sound cooler. Omicron but... sounds like a transformer. I'm not going to lie. It sounds like a, like a, yeah, a Decepticon. Well, actually, Omicron yeah. does too. Yeah, there but you go. anyway, it's a fun name for a not fun thing. No. Although I also kind of thought Delta variant sounded like a good sci-fi novel. <laughs> yeah, Delta. if Robert Ludlum had written a sci-fi novel, it would be called the Delta variant. That's how I right. thought of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we're you're going to pay for this. I am... Also curious, Dan, and and this isn't really IR, but maybe it's just sort of a historical question. I imagine this is human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is it? How? I mean, World War II saw a sustained national effort mm-hmm. on the part of Americans, but that might be an exception. Um, I mean, there can be sustained national efforts, but even World War II, you know, bear in mind you had people dying you know not just people but uh, young uh, uh, people. excuse me dan are people dying right now lots of people? yeah exactly yes yeah. so yeah th- i mean th- but you said young people sure young yeah. people is what is the difference and in terms of of how societies react to pandemics i don't mean to denigrate you know who is passing away but it would be safe to say that societies react more severely if it affects either the very young or working age populations and the thing about covid is is it primarily affects over 65 in terms of of mortality and things like that but so you're not denigrating them it's just a comment on our society yeah yeah it's it's what you know certain conservatives have deemed acceptable losses but i would put it in some way it's 
it's not even conservative or liberal. It's a human reaction, which is say, I always think about, you know, when we hit 100. Well, it's only conservatives who have actually like said it yeah. on television. But the, the way I would put it as follows. <laughs> when we hit 100,000 dead from the coronavirus, the New York Times published this front page that had like, you know, the list of every name or, or what have you. And it was it was sort of a shattering moment. Was it a grim milestone? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And now we've hit 800,000 and people are kind of shrugging their shoulders a little bit. Somehow not a grim milestone. No. And the reason is, is and unfortunately, this is innate, the nature of human beings. And I've always argued that The Expanse is a show in some ways about human nature realism is that we are adaptable. And this is our a strength of ours. But it is also there are times where it makes us really fucking callous. And there's just no other way to get around that. Yeah. And it, it's also it's, there are times when it actually is not an evolutionary adaptation mm-hmm. like in this particular case yeah. with the pandemic yeah. like more people will die because of our callousness and well more people should watch the expanse i guess yes i think so we should probably pivot back to the let's, expanse. M- let's move on <laughs> okay let us move uh from the tynan to the rossi or as i like to call it the ship of regrets the Rocinante is on its way back to series, and the crew is opening up to each other. Holden gives Clarissa more responsibility, letting her take the watch, and she expresses regret for the fact that she had mods installed to try to kill him. Holden does some nice holdening and makes Clarissa feel better. Bobby and Amos talk about everything that's happened since the destruction of the Canterbury, which for a long time... Watchers of the Expanse knows happens in the pilot episode. Amos also gets a message from Prax, our second cameo, important cameo of the episode. On Ganymede, Prax says they have come up with a new kind of grain that would help to alleviate Earth's food problem. And if I understood it correctly, also maybe solve the climate change issue. Prax gives Amos the data and tells him to please relay it to important people. Holden and Naomi talk about Naomi freezing up during the previous episode, and Holden asks Naomi to look into the Barkeith's disappearance. Naomi is happy to be distracted and thinks there is, in fact, a pattern. There's other things that happens on the Rossi, but we're going to get to that a little bit later. Anna, we have both occasionally expressed, let's say, irritation with with Holden being so fucking Holden. And we're going to get to one of those moments very, very soon. But... I actually thought this episode did a nice job of showing how Holden is a legitimately good day-to-day captain and leader. He does make Clarissa feel reassured and is actually right to give Naomi a distracting project. What say you? Well, Dan, as with most of us, (laughs) Holden's deficits are also his assets. (laughs) He's a softy, which can make him infuriating in terms of making decisions on you know, behalf of a large group of people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which is where he's the most annoying, when he's making a decision for a group and he decides to go with his heart rather than his head. Yeah. However, going with your heart rather than your head in interpersonal relations is often the right move. And it also, by the yeah. way, is it's not incommensurate with your head. Like, there's reasons why you yes. have to do that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I appreciated the Bobby and Amos scene, of course. Yes. <laughs> I liked the Prax scene in part because, for me, much of what Prax said was incomprehensible. And (laughs) I I like that it was for Bobby and Amos as well. And Bobby's kind of like, what the fuck? And Amos is like, he'll he'll get there. He'll He'll get get there. there. And then literally like like five seconds later, Prax gets there. That entire exchange was priceless. And the the expression Amos had on his face of like, why the fuck is he doing this? Like, you know, it's it's so Prax being Prax. But it was uh, was well handled. Yes. We haven't seen much of Amos, mm-hmm. I, I feel like. Yeah. And we definitely haven't seen um, some of West Chatham's really kind of subtle 
acting when we see Amos in situations where because of his background, he has to process things in a different way than most people, let's say. Right. And I did like sort of this little bit where it was played for laughs, but also Wes does a good job mm-hmm. where he says, you know, he can't he basically like, why the fuck would someone do this for no reason beyond helping people? Oh, see, I didn't think that was played for laughs. I actually thought that was a really sweet moment by Amos where I thought. Oh, maybe not laughs, but yeah. I felt like it was. It was an un, it was like a beat of like yeah like this is Amos you know I thought it was sweet would be the way I would put it which is like I mm. it, there was a moment where Amos like I think Amos says like he didn't have to do this he's just a good guy and like you can tell that Amos is literally thinking out loud and trying to process this because this is behavior that is confusing to him but I think he also admires it and so like admires it on an intellectual level that was the read I had on that exchange I guess I mean played for laughs might be a strong way of putting it okay. but I felt that there was a it is amusing yes, because it's the kind of behavior that's like a stereotypical like Amos thing to say and do, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's it's played lightly. That's say. a fair way of putting it, yeah. It's not played like other times we see Amos struggle with morality. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a little more intense. Right. You know? But look, this way, I, think we're, I, I think what we're in agreement on is that Wes Chatham plays that moment really well, that there are layers yeah. to his reaction. And so like you picked up on one layer and I think I picked up on a slightly different yeah. one. So yeah, that's fair. One last thing, which is as a reader of the books, mm-hmm. I think that the missing ship stuff. The Barkeith, yeah. Barkeith is being kind of like, you know, shoved into the plot a little clumsily Mm -hmm. but they have to get through a lot of plot in the next three episodes so i will i will leave it to them fair enough all right let us leave the rossi and go to the pella very briefly in which everyone is debating who is more belter than thou so the pella is sailing along with the lauba and the granicus after leaving series philip notices that marco cutting and running is not playing well with every belter and rosenfeld notes that the inners are building warships a lot faster than anticipated marco and his pretty pretty hair seem entirely unruffled by all of this Philip questions Marco's tactics behind closed doors in Marco's office. Marco explains that he said Ceres would be the capital of the belt because that's what the people at Ceres wanted to hear, and it therefore made everything easier. He even goes so far as to say that Ceres isn't really in the belt, and that the denizens of Ceres possess, I believe, a slave mentality. The Pella picks up the Rossi's drive signature. Marco realizes that they have a huge missile advantage and decides to attack despite Rosenfeld's warnings. And that means there's going to be a space fight! Space fight! Which we will get to in a second. But, Anna, I'm starting to think you are right about Rosenfeld, who's Marco's second in command. This was the episode where she really begins to think that maybe Marco isn't the best commander. Yes. And also, is anyone belter enough for Marco beyond Marco? Well, Dan, you're not the only person who can cite academic tests. Whoa, okay, (laughs) fine. And it's not Adorno. (laughs) When Marco was making that point, I thought actually of Karen Armstrong's book on fundamentalism, which is called The Battle for God, which is about, you know, theology Mm -hmm. um, and history and not really political science. But the point that she makes that resonated for me here is that there's no such thing as fundamentalism. There's no real fundamental text. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's constantly being reinvented as like for an argument for being the authority Mm -hmm. on something. And as a reaction to modernism, as a reaction to the perceived like straying of other sects. So, and I think that's believe that you have spoken to this before, which is that this is the story of insurgencies in general, yeah, that's right? right. Yeah. And it's just put in a, a way that was reminded me of religion mm-hmm. in this particular section, like 
I guess it's national. It's, it's nationalism too, but great book. <laughs> the other thing I want to say about Marco is he really has gone full Trump. He has, you know? hasn't he? Like, I, there's definitely Trumpish elements in like, this season. He has ridiculous hair. Yeah. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Hold Keon, on. Keon, sorry. No, it is on. ridiculous. Okay, hold on. Okay. Now, we, now, we need to explain to listeners. So I will defend Keon somewhat on this, which is Keon has great natural hair. Like, I, I you know, yes. he's got lovely flowing locks. You're talking about Marco's man bun, correct? Yes. Okay, yes. Which, which did prompt a bit of a Twitter conversation, Anna. With puns that I, I shan't repeat here. <laughs> Very few puns deserve to be shared. So I also will say, I, I thought of this when I was reading the, actually, I'm, I'm reading the last book right now. A lot of people wear buns in space because it's good for zero G, mm. but we're not in zero G, or at least they don't depict zero G. Right. So mm, I think he has ridiculous hair. <laughs> uh, he wears ridiculous outfits. Mm-hmm. Also like Trump, he says what people want to hear. Right. Right. Or what he thinks people want to hear, yeah. What he thinks people want to hear. And he's this really dangerous combination of ridiculous and powerful Mm -hmm. and fickle, you know? Like, it would be funny if it weren't so threatening. Right. It could be comical if it wasn't for the fact that that millions and billions of people have died. Yeah. So I I don't know. I'm sure it's not intentional, but the Trump analog. uh, (laughs) But... It's it's actually just probably a true depiction of what a lot of cult leaders are like. Mm-hmm. Faintly ridiculous, more or less faintly, sometimes more ridiculous than others, uh, fickle mm-hmm. and dangerous. You know, that's that's the combination. That's the winning combination for a cult leader. Mm-hmm. And charismatic, which we have, which Keon continues to lay out in at 110%. Yeah. Although I think... I don't mean this to sound in a praiseworthy way. There's also a, like a cunning there in both of yeah. them that, that has sure. to be acknowledged because otherwise this again this, cult leader. Yeah, fair enough. Like or or insurgency leader too. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be a cult, but any anytime you're getting people to do stuff mm-hmm. that doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> necessarily, or that's not going to be something that's in your own self interest. Mm-hmm. If anytime you're getting people to to do something dangerous, it helps to have all of those characteristics. Yes. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's get to the space fight. Space fight. I'm just going to say it like that every time we get to this. The Rossi's railgun manages to knock out the Pella's missiles and they incapacitate the Lauba, which causes the Granicus to have to assist. So now it's one on one between the Rossi and the Pella. And I should add, by the way, that Philip literally is the trigger finger on the Pella. The Pella keeps firing. Bobby realizes that the Pella is dodging to port consistently when the Rossi fires back. She fires a missile and incapacitates the Pella. Bobby wants the kill shot, but Holden first demands Marco's surrender, which he refuses. Bobby has had enough of this shit and (laughs) fires a torpedo. Holden, seeing Philip with Marco, disarms the missile, leaving Appella and Marco to fight for another day. After the battle, Marco trashes everyone's performance in the Free Navy. Philip ain't buying it, saying they fought hard. This escalates into Philip calling out Marco in front of the entire crew for attacking the Rossi for personal reasons. Marco relieves him of duty, but the other crew members are starting to look at Marco a little bit funny. He goes into his office where he sees a message suggesting that some new ships from Laconia are about to come online. There is a reference to RCR G6, and a ship that looks very similar to the one that I think we saw in the very opening shot. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Okay, Anna. It might have protomolecule technology. There we go. Okay. Yeah. All right, Anna. A, a few things. First of all, even Naomi thought it was the right move to kill Marco when the Pella was incapacitated. 
is Holden showing mercy here? The ultimate Holden move where you just want to say, <laughs> for fuck's sake, for the love of God, just kill the goddamn ship. Also, as much as I cannot stand Marco, I find Philip acting in ways that make his rebellion seem utterly insufferable. And I have to begin to wonder if this is intentional by the writers, which is to say, it's not that Philip is wrong to call Marco out. But if you're going to really try to do this to actually try to change his mind, you're going to do this behind closed doors. And it's interesting to me that this show had Philip question Marco first behind closed doors in the first scenes in the in this show. But then in this final one, he just acts out in front of everyone. What say mm-hmm. you? I think in response to both of those, I'm going to say Holden going to Holden and <laughs> Teen's going to Teen. Yeah. I was surprised in the first episode you said something about Philip's brooding being kind of attractive. Mm-hmm. And and maybe I have just, in my past, been involved with too many brooding, brooding young men. <laughs> yeah, brooding teens. Politically active, brooding young men. <laughs> Self-serious young men who are fighting their internal battles out loud. <laughs> I just want to give you the $15 million and have you develop the Netflix show now as we speak, but keep going. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, I found him insufferable from the beginning. I think, and sort of as with, as with sort of the portrayal of Marco, I feel like if it's not intentional, it is accurate. Hmm. Because this is, I think, what would happen. Like, I mean, poor Philip, right? Yeah. Like, he's had one of the most confusing upbringings, like, a human being could have. Right. And I think this like is both. This is, by the way, why I like the brooding in the first episode of the season. Yeah. Because it made sense to me. And I actually felt his pain. But as, as things are going on, yes, he's starting to, to teen it up a little bit. But sorry, keep going. I mean, he's been both coddled and abused. Yeah. Which is a terrible combination like we've we've talked or i've said you know it seems like you know marco's trying to raise a sociopath Uh, in some ways the trump analogy which is to say his replacement (laughs) no but i I think in some ways the trump analogy works well here because just as the trump kids are in many ways just weird collections of of you know sociopathic coddling and abuse coddling and abuse that's what i mean yeah in some ways i i think i hadn't thought about philip as being like donald trump jr but it actually makes a great deal of sense yeah, I hate to kind of hate to do that to him because he's also Naomi's right, son. But, but, you know, I, I did see how this was going to go, I have to say. I mean, mm-hmm. and of course, I think you were talking about Marco, an important aspect of his character being that he's cunning and that that low cunning, as, yeah. as I believe Shakespeare right. uses that term. I wondered why you put Philip on the trigger, mm-hmm. right? But isn't it great that he was right there behind Marco yeah. when the comms came up? That was convenient. Yes, yes. Anyway, Dan? Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this episode? Anna, we are all different people who come from different places. And you know what? There is IR in all of those places. (laughs) So we do see several kinds of of foreign policy gambits in this episode. One which you talked about, which I agree is the sort of outbidding in terms of, you know, insurgent discourse. But I think um, there are two things that we see that are, are legit fascinating and genuinely au courant in terms of, of how we think about foreign policy. One is this notion of soft power, which is a concept that, that Joe Nye uh, developed back in 1990. But it's the idea that by acting in, in certain ways, you try to get others to start to want the same things that you want. And one of the ways that you can build soft power is by executing 
policy competently by actually engaging in things like humanitarian relief. And so Avicerala is right to want to feed the refugees on Ceres. Humanitarian relief is a form of soft power. A excellent real-world example of this would be U.S. humanitarian assistance in early 2005 following the earthquake and tsunami that devastated the Pacific Rim, most obviously in Indonesia. There's actually polling evidence that shows that in particular Indonesians, despite widespread global uh, resentment of George W. Bush at the time because he was the president. Indonesia was the exception for a long period of time because the Indonesians remembered the U.S. Navy coming to their assistance during that tsunami event. So Avasarala is right to do that. The second and more appalling uh, foreign policy phenomena that we are now seeing is the weaponization of humanitarian suffering. Abbasarala and Monica's documentary obviously was designed to sort of build sympathy with the Belters to demonstrate that there was genuine suffering on Earth. But also Marco knowing that the UN would be taxed feeding folks on Ceres. This unfortunately happens all the goddamn time in the real world. We can think about states that are under sanction trying to shift the burden of those sanctions from their own behavior to the countries that are sanctioning. And I want to be very clear here, there is a complex moral debate to be had about the ethics of, of imposing sanctions. But we saw this with respect to Saddam Hussein in terms of the suffering from Iraq's population in the 1990s. We are going to be seeing this with respect to the Taliban controlling Afghanistan and the humanitarian catastrophe that will eventually, or is starting to loom large uh, there. And then, you know, the other way in which we're seeing in real the real world the weaponization of humanity Right now, as a matter of yes, fact. Yes, is the ways in which some countries are trying to use the possibility of refugee flows as a way to put pressure on other governments. So we saw this with Erdogan, who was the president of Turkey, in terms of allowing Syrian refugees to flood into Europe. Alexander Lukashenko, who is a uh, the dictator of Belarus, is threatening to do the same thing by bringing in, I believe, Iraqi refugees to Belarus and then putting them on the border with Poland, threatening them to let them cross the border. So unfortunately, this kind of thing happens all the time. It's appalling. And nonetheless, the expanse is right to point out that these tactics might very well be used in uh, interstellar warfare. You know, Dan, when you say the weaponization of humanitarian suffering, Mm -hmm. it happens all the time. I would say, you know, the weaponization of humanitarian suffering is another way to say politics. I mean, it's on a smaller scale, but if you look at a political campaign in particular, Mm -hmm. like what, what is often happening Mm -hmm. is the weaponization of human suffering, you know, to get people motivated to vote, like Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, and I don't think any, either side has a monopoly on this, right? And I'll just point out a, a my side problem that is kind of being addressed, but these days, mm-hmm. if you go to a reproductive rights rally, you will get a note saying, please do not bring coat hangers or coat hanger iconography. Because it's been decided, come on. Like, we don't have to play that card. Right. This is a debate that's about, and it should be a debate that's not just about so-called back alley abortions. Mm-hmm. Like, this should be a debate about women's freedom. Right. And, and, and rights mm-hmm. rather than this really specific and grotesque thing. Yeah. On the other side, you have the, the pro-life, or I should say pro-birth mm-hmm. uh, protesters who have the pictures of, you know, I'm not even going to say yeah. it, medical waste, right. let's say, that they hold up. And, and so, I mean, I, getting a little cynical, but the expanse is cynical too. But yeah. like, this is how we do politics and it works. Mm-hmm. That's why we do it that way. That is a fair point. Anna? Yes, Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this episode? Well, Dan, 
Yeah, the show did the work for me, <laughs> I am happy to say. Sex work is work, Dan. And I am glad to see, I mean, I, 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 the unionization of sex workers is an important topic that actually is something people talk about now. Yeah. And The Expanse has is... When I tell people about The Expanse, it doesn't always entice them, but sometimes the first thing I say is, it's a show about labor unions. <laughs> so I love it. You know, the, it has shied away a bit from that, but, you know, the transport union is a huge player in all of The Expanse universe, oh, right? We should point out, by the way, that the, they're talking about the fact that all of the brothels on series are union brothels. Oh, so sorry. That should be, yes. I'm just it, there's mention. Amos... Amos patronizes the union brothels, right. which I assume he speaks of that as being it's a like sign an of quality. Asset. Yeah, it's a sign of yeah, quality. As I was going to say, right. like, look for the union label. Oh, I like right? that. <laughs> <laughs> and the expanse, you know, in general, we talked about this a little bit with the non-binary character, I think handles all of this kind of, for lack of a better term, they handle all the social justice warrior stuff mm-hmm. pretty well and just very casually. Mm-hmm. So go expanse. <laughs> Uh, Uh, All right, Dan, Uh, what is your theme for this episode? So my theme from this episode is about regret. The quotes that I have chosen are, are in some ways all about regret or the sociopathic lack of regret. Everybody on this ship has something they regret, including Amos, I think. You and I were meant to be out here. In the darkness. A lot of the characters in this episode, the Rossi crew, uh, even Philip in his own bratty way, Ava Sarala, and Kara on Laconia, they all feel regret about what they've done in the past. And I particularly liked, by the way, the subtle callback to Ava Sarala's torture of the belter that we see in the pilot episode. And in contrast to all of that is Marco's quote, because Marco seems legitimately incapable of regret at this point, which really does make him the most narcissistic sociopath imaginable. And again, in many ways, like leaders we have seen in this country recently. (laughs) They're a factor in history, basically. But yes, we have a particularly recent example. Uh, I I like that, Dan. I also saw that as a theme, and it dovetails quite nicely with the theme that I decided to talk about. Which is your theme, Mama? trust so these colleagues of yours the goal has three shotgun pdcs and one missile rack the saber hagen is all missiles but they carry a good loadout and you trust them fully fully well more like enough so i noticed this is an episode where people tell other people they had at one point planned to kill them mm. or have been enemies with them mm-hmm. And of course, this is a barrier to trust, Dan. Yeah, that, that can uh, pose some, some issues there. Yeah, But everyone is asking for a lot of it mm-hmm. and taking a risk. The quote that I picked there comes from Drummer talking about her alliance with the former Golden Bow ships. Mm-hmm. But there's Holden and Cur- Clarissa. Mm-hmm. There's Avasarala and Sanraji. There's the series residents actually on their part having to trust uh, the UN soldiers. Mm-hmm. And Monica and the troops that she's embedded with having to trust her. Mm-hmm. And of course, Holden and everyone. <laughs> like, that is what enables Holden to be Holden is that people trust him. This is true. Like, That's fair. Yeah. 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 And we touched on this a little bit ago, which is that this show is, is pretty cynical. Or realistic, depending on how uh, you feel 
<laughs> you could describe it as either. Yeah. And they are never going to argue that you should trust people, period, right? Or that oh, people yeah. are trustworthy. No, there's that great conversation between Avasarala and her general about whether Sandrani was telling the truth or not. And like, it was clear Avasarala recognized, no, I'm not going to de facto assume that. Yeah. Right. Now, what I love about The Expanse mm-hmm. and what makes it ultimately pretty hopeful mm-hmm. is that it does seem to suggest over and over that sometimes you should trust people even if it's a risk Mm -hmm. that sometimes trusting people is actually just the right thing to do even if you recognize that betrayal is a possibility right it's not just that it's the right thing to do it's sometimes also the smart play what i like about the expanse though is that it's the right thing yes yes you're totally right yeah and and that's where the sort of cynicism slash realism of the expanse comes in is yes sometimes trusting people right. is the, the right play. The only thing I'm trying to say here is that the the expanse avoids the false dichotomy of pointing out that sometimes yeah. the right thing to do is the painful thing or you know the, the right you know what I mean that like there can be times where you can yes. do good. Yes, and do that's well. a really good distinction yeah. because I like that about the show too. Yeah. Is that you sometimes doing the right thing is also doing the smart mm-hmm. thing, and that's cool to look at it that way. Yeah. All right. Oh my god! It's pieces of the pella oh no. Oh no. coming at us! Oh no. oh no! Oh god! Dan, we have entered the debris field. Oh goody. This is where we talk about the things we didn't get to talk about earlier. What do you got? So a couple of things. First, I, I just love the idea of Amos not knowing anything about series beyond noodle bars, booze, and brothels. And to be fair, those are really important things, one would imagine, in, you know, if you're traveling across the stars. In Amos's world, they're in Amos's the world. things. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, noodle bars are important also, Anna. So, like, that's all I'm going to mm-hmm. say. Second, I, it was just a casual thing, but I did love the the general referring to green zones uh, on series in terms of, of places where belters were not allowed. Again, that's just sort of a quick one-off and it wasn't a huge thing. Avasarala's look, She there's a brief scene where Avasarala compliments Monica on the report that she's done. And Monica sort of gives a response that's a, you know, slightly acerbic. I don't know if you caught this. Avasarala turns around and has this look like, I can't believe I have to fucking deal with this bullshit, which was just priceless. Uh, Shora Agdashlu is not in this uh, episode all that much, but God, the ratio of like what she can wring out of a scene, even when it's like that, not that much of a deal. Is, I, I just love that look. It was great. I want an app where Bobby calls Amos all the diminutives. Um, because when Bobby calls Amos honey buns, I just, I lost it. And I, I must've replayed that at least three or four times. It was, uh, it was really good. It turned about is fair play. So the last thing is, and this is, I assume is where we're going, but like Holden at one point says we need an expert from inside the ring. I'm assuming that's drummer, but I, I suppose. We well, she's not currently in the ring, right? Right. But I, but drummer had been on Medina station, right? Like in the ring. So like I was. Assuming that was where I was going. But Again, we'll there are so many threads kind of dangling yeah. if they're if they're both attending to the plot lines they've already laid out mm-hmm. and trying to draw in stuff from the books. Like, I know that this is going to end better than Game of Thrones. I have full confidence that mm-hmm. this will be satisfying. And I also know there will be things left untied up because also that's what life is like. Right. And that seems appropriate that The Expanse would have some loose threads as in like, yeah. yeah. If, of course. Um, it's just, again, I, I'm sure this is something it it's, if not intentional, still pretty canny, which is that the way the show has gone, book readers have to watch mm-hmm. because it's not so faithful that you can right. be like, eh, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. 
Like mm-hmm. they pick and choose plot lines. They make some, you know, they combine some characters, make some characters different. So yeah, I'm genuinely interested to see where they go with this. Which is a compliment to the show and the way the show yes. is simultaneously mm-hmm. emanating from the books, but also knows that it's a different thing. Yeah. Anna, what about you? I really appreciated it when Bobby says to Amos that uh, Vassarella loves it when (laughs) Amos calls her Chrissy, to which he responds, at least I do it to her face, (laughs) which is true. And that's very Amos. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you noticed, and I may be just picking up on things I shouldn't pick up on, but there is a point at which the two soldiers that are handing out humanitarian aid, the one that's kind of not an asshole, is like, oh, what's going on over there? And like has to go and leave the guy and it's just like it's one of those things where it's like why am I seeing this like is this going to be important at some later date so I read that or I watched that as they they. they I, I mean I mean so no no no, no. Here, it was because like, they lost Monica that was the problem so Monica right yeah. but like I oh okay I mean it could it could be just it could be super simple this way. but part of me is like is there like a I think the reason they happening? do that is because I'm assuming Monica survives the explosion and they don't oh yeah, and it, so it right. sets it up like Monica is further away from wherever the explosion is. So that that would be my mm-hmm. hunch. But I but you're right. It, it could be something else. There's just somehow it felt drawn attention to. And I wondered, <laughs> I will say this was the funniest or at least most um, lively, uh, I don't, lively yeah. and least dark episode <laughs> we've had so far. I laughed a lot. I laughed at the asshole line. Yeah. I always laugh at what Marco is wearing and will <laughs> never not be funny. And then the Marco's line to Philip where Philip, he's like, well, how did I disappoint you or something? And Marco says, you were supposed to kill the enemy and they're not dead. It's <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> yes. Like, again, like Trump, Marco has the ability to come up with like these lines that are just so blunt mm-hmm. that they are hysterical. Yeah. And and so I, I liked that. I also want to wonder, Amos's tattoos seem like there might be more of them or they are different. Don't know if that's true, but I pay attention to tattoos. Oh, yeah. And I love that the Rossi is looking as beat up as the characters. Like they're they're paying attention to the wear and tear on the ship as much as on the crew. Yes. I also like the fact, I mean, I, as we you talked in the first episode about how transitions from season to season can be rough. But I, I think we're now like in full season. And so like it's nice to see that they're establishing a rhythm. And, and I'm looking to see how these last three episodes go. Because as you say, there are a lot of threads that got to be tied up. It's a real like tangle of yarn <laughs> over there. So I think we can wrap up now. I don't have much to add. Become a patron. Please. Happy holidays to those who celebrate. Yes. Good yultim and tenye wa yitim kush. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I looked that up in pronunciation. I'm sure someone out there speaks Belter mm. and can correct me on my pronunciation, Excellent. but I decided to, to be like the non-asshole soldier. Very good. <laughs> and at least attempt to speak the language. Mm-hmm. All right, Dan, we will be talking about episode four next time. And until then. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>